Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Exodus chapter, I'm going to read the first 10 verses, chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. And I am come to down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land onto a good land and large, onto a land flowing with milk and honey, onto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In this passage, we, we read of the events of Moses' calling. They're miraculous. I don't think every pastor and evangelist is called in this miraculous way where there's a fire that doesn't consume things. It, it's remarkable in how God calls out to him at this place in his life. God has an incredible calling on Moses' life to free Israel from bondage. And he does numerous miracles. We, we've heard the story. We, we know of the, the seas splitting. We know about the, the water pouring out of rocks in the desert. Moses is one of the greatest men of God, one of the heroes of the Bible, no doubt. And all I want to talk about for a few minutes tonight is why God chose Moses. Not so much the miracles, but why did he choose him? Let's put our Bibles down and ask God to be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that you would just put me aside now and let the Holy Ghost take control, Lord God. I pray in Jesus' name that your word would penetrate our minds and our hearts. Jesus, I pray that you would do exactly what you wanna do, that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, let your word be hidden in our hearts. God, help us to just put every care and and every burden aside of this world and help us to give you our undivided soul attention just for a few more minutes tonight, God, to know you more, to be closer to you, Jesus, and to walk closer beside you in Jesus' name. We can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Amen. You will read in the book of Numbers, and I, I will momentarily, man on the earth. It says those words exactly. He is the meekest man on earth. And if you... It's a bit cliche, but I didn't look up the definition. The definition of meek is quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on, and make note of this last synonym, submissive. Many are called, few are humble, is my belief tonight. When God went to find the person who was going to march into Pharaoh's courts, 
and directly challenge the most powerful king in the known world, a, a dictator more than likely. He, he chose the quietest, gentlest, most submissive person in the world. It's, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to fathom. Why on earth would God choose that person? Because he's gonna free the children of Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand. And nothing proves how mighty God is more than using someone that has no natural ability to do what God's about to use them for. Nothing proves his glory more. Nothing shows his glory more than using someone that's incapable. Moses can't even talk. It's widely believed and accepted that he had a speech impediment or a stutter, even better for God. Moses is a murderer, remember, in the land of Egypt. He's a fugitive, really, hiding out with Jethro and his family. Moses has some skeletons in his closet. He'd probably prefer not to go back and open up in the land of Egypt. He, he's made some mistakes. He's failed. He's got a past that he's not proud of. Even better for God. Remember, this is the same God that came to earth as a man and in weakness saved the world. It's the same God that breathed life into dirt and formed mankind, into dirt. That's what he chooses. It's the same God that when he was here and it robed in flesh, he took the dirt of the ground and put it in the eyes of the blind and suddenly they could see. He can use dirt, he can use any weakness to get glory. And Moses starts to voice some of the insecurity and, and shame that he has in the next few chapters. He, he's initially excited. I, for myself, I imagine he's, he's overwhelmed by the presence of God, perhaps even excited. Perhaps we're some of you in, in a, the midst of a blowout service or just a, an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. You're, you're excited about the calling God has on you with the direction he's pointing you in. And, and then you go home or you go to the next chapter in this case and he starts to question. And he says, who am I? I'm a nobody. He's, he, he questions God. He's afraid that the Israelites won't even believe him. Who are you to come lead us out of anywhere? He, he says it to God. He's like, I'm, I'm not eloquent of speech, he says. But God had already chosen Moses. So he reassures him on every single objection. He had already handpicked the meekest man on the earth to be used for his purpose. I want you to make note of how he addresses Moses at the burning bush. Go back to verse six, if you would. In verse six, he says, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's unique that he says Jacob. It's particular that he says Jacob. Abraham was not always Abraham. Abraham was Abram before his name was changed by God. Jacob became Israel after he wrestled with God till the daybreak by the brook Kidron. He became Israel at that point and became the father of the nations of Israel, his, his immediate descendants. But God chooses to address him not as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He specifically says Jacob. The name Jacob is interpreted as supplanter which is synonymous with deception and trickery. If you remember the story of Jacob, he's a thief and a liar and a deceiver. Very imperfect. Got a lot of skeletons in his closet, a lot of things he wishes he could go back and undo and do differently in his life. God's speaking to Moses directly to let him know, 
I'm the God of Jacob. If I can use a thief and a liar and a deceiver, I can use you too. It's no problem. I can use anybody. It's the same God that used the jawbone of a donkey to defeat Philistines. He can use anything. And he's letting, God, he's letting Jacob know that. Or excuse me, Moses. Before he changed his name, God chooses the humble. Moses was the only person on the earth humble enough to be used in the way that he was about to be used. Let me prove it to you more. If you go to Numbers chapter 12, and starting at verse one again. Numbers chapter 12 and verse one. I'll ask for some grace and I'm gonna read a little bit with length, but the word of God is powerful. I don't wanna leave anything out. Numbers chapter 12, verse one reads this way. I'm gonna go through 13. And, and Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses, here's our, our text for tonight where I draw my thought. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and said unto Aaron and unto Miriam, come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out and the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam and they, they both came forth. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude, similitude of the Lord shall, be behold, shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. And the cloud departed off the tabernacle and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not thy sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried, unto the Lord saying, heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. Aaron and Miriam are using the complaint of Moses' Ethiopian wife as an opportunity to criticize his leadership. In verse two, they reveal, they reveal their real problem. It's, it's pride. Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? Why aren't we as good as Moses? Aren't we equal? Doesn't God speak to us also? And they are prophets. It'll tell you in the book of Micah, they're both prophets of God. They're not incorrect that he speaks to them. But here's what's incorrect. There's actually no rule against intermarrying with Ethiopians. There's only instruction later in Deuteronomy not to marry with the nations of Canaan. Not the same thing. And it's, and it's much later in this chronology. It's an attack on Moses' leadership. But, but make notice, he's so humble, he doesn't even defend himself. God defends him. When, you, when you're humble and submitted to God, he fights for you on your behalf. He goes to battle for you. Aaron and Miriam, like I said, they're, they're prophets. They're, that's correct. 
but they're trying to push the agenda. They're equal to Moses. Here's how God responds. He says, Moses, I'll put it in, I do this for the youth class. We'll put it in, in modern day English. He's not even a prophet. He's greater than that. It says he speaks to him mouth to mouth directly. Exodus 33:11 says he speaks to him face to face as a man speaketh to a friend. Can you imagine speaking face to face with God? Can you imagine seeing the glory of God, even the hinder parts like Moses got to see? He, he speaks to him directly. He doesn't use dark speech. What, what that means is he doesn't speak to him in ways that have to be interpreted, that have to be you know, discombobulated, recombobulated. It, 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 he speaks to him like a man in his own language. Why? Because he's the meekest man on the earth. He chooses the humble. When Miriam struck by leprosy, by God, the very person that just challenged his authority, and you have to feel for Moses at this point, he didn't even want to go to begin with. He didn't even want to go to Egypt. <laughs> he was pretty comfortable hanging out with, with Jethro and his family. God calls him for a purpose. He tries to explain why he's not capable, why he's not qualified. He still goes. And all throughout his ministry, you could go and count all the murmuring, all the complaining. The children of Israel, they complain about the food. They complain about the path they take on the journey. They complain about every single thing. They threaten to stone him, we'll read about in a few minutes. The constant, the people that he's, that he's leading are attacking him, undermining him. And all he's trying to do is the will of God. And here come the people, the leaders that are closest to him. And they attack his authority. But what does he do? How, what is his reaction? He begs for their healing. I beseech you means he begs God for the healing of the person that just came against him. That's humility. You see, it's, it's easy to be humble in the most basic terms. When, when we think of this, we, we think about, well, I, I, I don't brag. I don't have an arrogant spirit. I don't carry myself with arrogance. I don't talk about myself in conversation. That's a surface level humility. That, that's, it's the easiest form of humility. Complete humility is quenching your pride enough to love people even when they attack you and hurt you intentionally. It's, it's the ability to love people at their worst even when they're against you. I had the privilege of listening to the last time Brother Marty spoke and he made a comment when he, when he got started that he was gonna talk about contention. He didn't want people to feel like there was this, he perceived all this contention at Abundant Life. Please don't mishear me. I don't, same thing I request. I don't mean that either. I don't think there's a bunch of pride and arrogance going through our, our halls and our pews but I think we have an opportunity to get to a deeper level of humility, to go even further with it because there's power in it. There's great power. Humility is powerful. The debt that Christ paid for us and the forgiveness that we have received, if you really start thinking about it, we have no business holding bitterness or animosity against anybody. We've been forgiven for a life of sin what we ought to do with those people that maliciously come against, it, we have to cry out on their behalf. Beg God for their healing. Beg God to bless their life. God, I, I pray that you would give me the humility of Moses, that you would give me the ability to love like you love. There's so much power in that. Let's prove it further. In Numbers 14, if you continue in the book of Numbers, 
It's a story where the spies come back from the promised land. And Caleb and Joshua have faith that the Lord will deliver the promised land into their hands. They say, let's go possess it. The Lord has given it to us, but the other 10 are petrified. They're faithless. And this is what's baffling. They convince an entire nation that they are incapable of possessing what God has already given them. And, and I, I Google searched this, so it's official. But how many Israelites were there that left Egypt? There were 600,000 men. That's just the men. That's not the women. That's not the children. There were potentially millions of people that 10 people convinced not to go inhabit the land that was given to them by the Lord their God. 10 people. What does Moses do? The same thing Moses always does. He falls on his face before the congregation and he begs them again to follow the direction of the Lord. And what do they say? Let's stone him. Let's kill him. Let's make a captain. Let's go back to Egypt. They attack him once again. The anger of the Lord is kindled against him. He, he, he says, how long will they provoke me? I've had it. I'm wiping them out. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bring down fire and kill them all. He does something eerily similar. He begs for their forgiveness. He begs God to spare them. He prays for the very people that were just about to stone him. We can't avoid it. People are gonna make mistakes. They're gonna hurt, pe they're gonna hurt people. People will hurt you. You will hurt people. Our only hope is to love with humility like Moses loved, like he, like he served. He begged for their forgiveness, just like he begged for Miriam's healing. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. James 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 says, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. I'm gonna speak from the heart for a second. I've learned recently the devil has a method of attacking. And it's not physical. He attacks your, he attacks your mind. I think back to Sunday. What, wasn't that powerful? The, the women that spoke on Sunday and gave testimony, wasn't that awesome? The, the words that Sister Heidi Lauersdorf spoke hit, hit me like a ton of bricks. And I know that there's, there's many folks that have struggled with starting families. But she talked about how the devil spoke into her mind, said you're a failure. And any, right, any person would say with a family or a couple, man or woman that's having trouble with a family, it's not your fault. You have no control over that. And that's rational but that's not how the devil operates. 
The devil gets in your mind. It's the most ludicrous, ridiculous things. It's, it's things that are completely irrational, that are unrealistic, but he, but he presses daily. The Bible says that, that Delilah pressed Samson daily. She grinded at him. They pushed at him. And that's the same way the devil attacks your mind. He pushes things into your head. No matter how insane they might seem, he just keeps coming and coming and coming until you start to believe things that make almost no sense. Here's the thing I, I believe I need to tell this church tonight. In the book of Job, the devil doesn't warn Job. He doesn't go to Job and say, the fire's coming. Your family's about to die. All you have will be destroyed. He doesn't attack his mind, does he? He doesn't say a word to him because God allowed that to happen. In other words, if Satan could do anything, he would have done it. If he's attacking your mind, it's because that's all he can do. That's all he can do. So what's the prescription? How do you defeat the enemy? It says it right there in James. It says in verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the place we miss. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You, you get under the authority of God, under the submission of God, and the devil is powerless. Brother, Brother Gaddy said it at district conference. I'm just remembering now that there is no answer. The devil has no answer for submission. He is powerless against it. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Submission is indicative of humility. It's one of the most powerful manifestations of humility. Submission is difficult. Why? Because we give up our own will. We give ourselves away for the will of God. The devil's attacking your mind. Don't argue with the devil. You don't argue with Satan, with the enemy. You were, the, the angel Michael doesn't argue when the devil attacks him. He says, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Jesus, in his period of temptation, says, get behind me, Satan. He will not argue with the enemy. You just call in the name of Jesus and you submit yourself to the name of Jesus, to the word of God, to the Holy Ghost, to the blood of Jesus, to the angels of God, to the will of God, and to the man of God. And there is nothing the devil has the ability to overcome if you do that. It's easy to talk about humility in ambiguous terms. It's nice to think about, but submission, that's real humility, that's deep humility. Loving your enemies, deep humility and submitting. When, when God called Moses, he said, here am I, those famous words, here am I. When God convicts our hearts, what is your response? Here am I. It's not always easy. Well, if, it's easy to think about if God asked me to teach a Sunday school class, here am I. God asked me to speak at a Wednesday night service, here am I. That's easy. But when God gives us direction that you're not very thrilled about, when he convicts us about our hobbies, how we spend our time, the places we go, the people we associate with, it's a little bit different. When he convicts us about our standards, when he convicts us about how we live our lives, it takes on a different meaning. Submission is difficult. But are you willing to say, here am I? God, if you want me to stop doing something, you want me to stop 
If, if there's certain types of movies you want me to stop watching, am I willing to say, God, here am I? It's, it's stuff that I didn't think of before, but I feel you convicting my heart. And if you want me to be different, if you want me to be more pleasing to you, God, I'll do anything to please you. Amen. If, if, if God wants me to do anything, I'll do it to please him. If it takes me just a little bit closer, if it takes me just a little bit deeper with him, if it makes me know him more. There is no end to the majesty of God. There's no, no man on this earth, the Bible says, has known every extent of God. Even the greatest man of God, even Moses who fasted for 40 days and, and, and even Elijah who fasted for 40 days, no, no man has known the deepest parts of God. That tells me that there's places with God that everyone in this room has never been to and I wanna see as much of it as I can before that day comes. I wanna see as much of it as I can get to. I wanna see his miracles. I wanna see his power. I wanna see the, the presence of God do things that they've never done. Praise God. Part of submitting to God is submitting to the man of God. And I'm gonna be careful here knowing the relationship. But let me just say this. A lot of you in this room are not quite that old. You might serve a different pastor than my father at some point in your lives. No matter who that is, no matter who the evangelist is, no matter who the Sunday school teacher is, who your department leader is, who your district leadership is, no matter who that is, we have power and submission to the man of God, the spiritual authority in your life that watches for your soul. Obey them that have the rule over you for they watch for your soul. Even, even when you disagree. Even when you disagree. Numbers chapter 14, verse 39 and 45. And Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel and the people mourned greatly. I'm sorry, context. Moses had just told the people we're not going to the promised land. You've, you've done it this time. You're, you're gonna wait 40 years till this generation dies out. Okay. Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and gat them up into the top of the mountain saying, lo, we be here and we will go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised for we have sinned. And Moses said, wherefore now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord, but it shall not prosper. Go not up. For the Lord is not among you, that ye be, be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed, they disagreed, and they presumed to go up unto, unto the hill top. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites, which dwelt in that hill, and smote them, and discomfited them even unto Hormah. When the Israelites went against the man of God, God was not with them. God is not among you, Moses tells them. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. The, the Spirit of God was not with them when they directly disobeyed their spiritual leadership the man of God. They refuse to submit. God does not honor the actions of those that don't submit to the man of God. God does not honor rebellion. But there's power in submission. Watch the, watch the opposite of this. 
what happens in the book of Joshua, and I won't, I won't read the whole story. We, we talked about it at a prayer meeting, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that time as well. When Joshua led the new generation into the promised land, he told them to not say a word when they marched. You remember that? Don't say a word. Why would he say that? Because the last time they started talking, they convinced millions of people to turn away from God. This time he says, we're gonna keep our mouths shut. They were obedient. They went and walked like they were told. They didn't say a word. They didn't object. They didn't disobey. And they marched. And they didn't try to stone him. And they didn't try to go back to Egypt. They didn't give that whole speech about word better that we died in Egypt than in the wilderness. They didn't do that. They just marched in silence. And what was the result? The walls of the enemy fell flat because they were under submission to their spiritual authority, because they were under submission to God. They were obedient. They were under authority. The walls of the enemy fall down. They didn't even lift a sword. That's a theme here as I, as I finish up tonight. They, they didn't even lift a sword. All they did is go for a walk. It, it might have been a long walk. <laughs> I'm not great with really long walks, but it's better than picking up a sword and going into battle with people that make me look like a grasshopper. I'd rather walk. King David, when, when God's anointed king tried to kill him, meaning Saul, he submitted himself. His words are powerful. He refused to kill Saul when he had the chance. And instead, he runs after him and he bows down before him and says, my Lord, the king. Now, if you're, I mean, if your pastor tries to kill you, I'm not recommending that. But, but he says, it's the anointed of God. I will not harm him. I will not come against him. Even if I disagree with him, my Lord, the king. David, before he goes into battle, he inquires of God. He first submits himself. He, when the Amalekites pillaged and burned Ziklag and took their wives and, and their children captive, there, there's a lot of emotions that are happening in, in the, the life of a man at that point and, and anger and, and, and just, for, I'm sure, just the most intense anger you could ever have. I can't even put words on it. But what does David do? He goes to inquire before the Lord what he should do. He said, I'm speaking to the men. We gotta stop trying to be problem solvers. Maybe that's just for me. Maybe men don't do that besides me. But we have to stop fixing things for ourselves. God's more than capable. You need God to have your battle. You gotta get to the prayer closet. Let God solve your problem. Let him fight your battles for you because I promise the victory will be far greater than what you can conquer on your own. I promise he'll do greater things than you can do with your own flesh, with your own abilities, your own resources. I promise you that. God's victory is always greater than our victory. The, the examples in King David go on. He, he allows the man of God to speak into his life. Back to that point. When the prophet Nathan goes before David in 2 Samuel 12, he uses the parable. You're familiar with it. He talks about the rich man that's got all the sheep and all the cattle. And, and then there's the poor guy that has that one precious lamb. And when David hears that this rich man went to take it and prepare it for his guest and kill it, what does David say? He, he cries out, we must kill this person. He must be punished. 
And I, I pick, again, I picture things. There's not, there's not pictures in my Bible anymore. But I picture Nathan pointing in his face, you are the man. How does he respond? He doesn't tell him to get lost, right? He doesn't push him away. He doesn't make excuses. He repents. His exact words were, I have sinned against the Lord. And he weeps and repents till the daybreak, till his pillow is soaked with tears. The meekness and humility of David. Do we let the man of God speak into our lives and offer guidance and direction? Do we submit ourselves to spiritual leadership? It's a rhetorical self-reflection. Or do we throw tantrums and, and refuse to be told how to live our lives? That's the nature of this world. That's the spirit of the world today. No one can tell me what right and wrong is. Everything's right. There's no conviction. Whatever wickedness you want to involve yourself in, that's your truth. That's your God. That's acceptable. That's not of God. That is not biblical. There is a right and a wrong. There is a heaven and a hell. There is good and evil. And thank God for the spiritual authority in our lives that holds us accountable to that. Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and the last one, for correction in righteousness. It's okay to be 18 years old and to be corrected. It's okay for your parents to speak into your lives and to correct you. I'm thankful that I had that. It's okay to be 55 years old and to be corrected. We need to be corrected. Praise God. We need to let the word of God correct us and the man of God correct us. That's what Saul, Saul does the opposite. And we know that story. Samuel tried to correct Saul. The man of God tried to speak into his life. He, he casted out blame. He pulled an Adam. Well, Samuel, you didn't get here on time. I had a better plan. God chose David over Saul. He chose the humble over the prideful. God chooses the humble. King Hezekiah. One of the greatest kings in all the Old Testament, one of the few that never turned on God. When the Assyrians come to attack Judah, Hezekiah runs to the altar. And after he does that, he runs to the man of God. He sends for Isaiah. He submits himself to God and the man of God. The Assyrians are taunting. They're taunting Judah. They're writing letters, mocking God, delivering power, threatening First thing, the Bible says the first thing Hezekiah does, he takes that letter, he goes into the house of God, he lays it on the altar, and he cries out for the help of God. He begs for deliverance. He seeks the Lord. Subsequently, he sends for Isaiah. He seeks direction from the man of God. He submits to their authority. And, and watch what happened. We already saw the enemy's walls fall flat, and saw that defeat. Oh, by the way, David does go and destroy those people that pillaged Ziklag. Let's watch it again. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, 
We see what happens to those same Assyrians that, that taunted and mocked God's delivering power. When the king of Judah went to the man of God and submitted himself, watch what happened. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Give me grace with the pronunciation. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in, at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisrash, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, his son, smote him with the sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And as Herodon, his son, reigned in his stead. They don't lift a sword. They don't fire a dart. They don't throw one spear. All they did was submit. All they did was submit and humble themselves. Well, Hezekiah humbled himself. And the angel of the Lord goes into the Syrian camp and kills 185,000 of their enemy. Wipes them out. There's power in humility. You can't convince me there isn't. There's power in submission. I didn't, I didn't know how to interpret, so I also had to look that up, what, what 100 force corn 5,000 is. 185,000 men. And then it's 185,006. Or in one, I'm sorry. <laughs> because the king gets killed by his own sons. God's victory is greater than yours. His repair is greater than what we can do with our own means. When you submit to the man of God, you're under the authority of God. When you're under the authority of God, you gain access to the power of God, to the power of the angels, to the power of the blood that fights on your behalf, that fights your battle. Gideon and his 300 never killed a single man. They never lifted a sword. They waved some pitchers in the air. They blew some trumpets. And the angels of the Lord fought those battles too. But they obeyed the man of God. And only the obedient were in that camp. Only the people that obeyed Gideon. The power of God fought their battle, gave them victory over Midian. God chooses the humble. He uses the humble. He blesses the humble. He fights the battles for those that humble themselves before him. Last example for tonight, powerful example. Genesis 13, story of Abraham and Lot, 13 in verse one. And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, onto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, onto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord and Lot also, which went with Abram, Abram had flocks and herds and tents. He had this wealth because of Abram. He was wealthy, he was, he was well off, however you'd like to describe it, because of his uncle Abram, who had brought him under his wing, had mentored him, had poured into him, had, had no doubt given him a lot of these things and started him off with where he was at that point. In verse six reads, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen for we 
be brethren? Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, selfish youngster he was, and beheld all the plain of Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord, Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest to Zoar, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. You could talk all day about that. But in verse eight, he says, Abram says the most important thing. He says, we be brethren. He humbles himself to avoid any further strife with his brother. He humbles himself. He puts down his pride and said, I don't care where you go. I don't care what you take. I don't care that I gave you everything you have. I just don't want there to be anything between you and me. That's true humility. Not about, I don't talk about myself. It's not about, oh, I don't, I'm not arrogant in my interactions. I'm willing to give my pride away if it means that me and my brother, me and my church family have no strife because we be brethren. In the next chapter, we can stand. Right? <clears throat> In the next chapter, God renews. Well, before I go to that, Lot could have been offended. He could have been upset. Or I'm sorry, Abram could have. But he loves Lot anyways. And what happens next has always been incredible to me. When the wicked kings of Elam, Shinar, and Eleazar come and kidnap Lot, Abraham immediately takes action. Genesis 14 and verse 14 to 16. It says, And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. In the very next chapter, God renews his covenant with Abraham to be the father of the nations of Israel. God makes his covenants with the humble. He keeps his promises to the humble. Well, you need to have the humility and love to forgive our brothers and sisters when they offend us. That's who God makes his covenant with. And I'll just say it, we have to stop being offended by everything someone does or says. People are people. They say dumb things. They do dumb things. They hurt us. They say hurtful things. They act on their flesh and they make mistakes. So do you. So does every one of us. Can we have the humility to put it aside, to forgive it? It's not worth your salvation to hold a grudge. And people might say, well, you don't know what was done to me. You don't know what happened to me. You're right, I don't. 
and probably haven't experienced most of it, and I don't claim to, but I can tell you it's not worth your salvation. It is not worth your eternity. God's looking for the humble. He's looking for the people that will submit, that will love people and forgive them at their worst. And furthermore, if you, if you have a calling on your life, you feel like God's directing you to a different place, to a purpose for his kingdom, even if it's the smallest thing. I, I'm amazed when I read about the, the reverent man Ananias in the New Testament. The only thing notable about him in the entire Bible, Ananias, was that he prayed Paul through to the Holy Ghost. That was his entire purpose. If that's my entire purpose is to pray someone through the Holy Ghost that's gonna go see thousands saved, that's gonna plant churches, God, I'm willing, here am I. If my purpose is so small that it seems insignificant to some people, here am I. I'm willing to do whatever it is, no matter how small it might seem. Those people that do those smallest things, that's who God, he puts a lot under. When you're faithful over a little, he makes you faithful over a lot. And he'll try you that way. First thing he did, he didn't have Gideon go defeat the Midianites. The first thing he had him do was tear down the altar of Baal. Something small. David didn't go defeat Goliath first. First he killed the bear and the lion. God will give you something small to be faithful over. But if you are humble, you give him your all. He'll make you faithful over a lot. And lastly tonight, whatever your enemy is, the devil's attacking you like I described. He's coming against you and your family. He's attacking your loved ones. There's sickness in the camp. Or you're in a situation that seems beyond repair and beyond reconciliation. Humility will send the angels into the camp of the enemy. And they will be victorious. Humility at the feet of God will send the angels to, to defeat your enemy, to, to give you victory in your battle. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, I thank you, Jesus, for the altar. I thank you, Lord God, for the ability to humble myself before you, Jesus. I thank you for honoring humility, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.